You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Oh, good morning, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothea. So good to see you all. You all look fantastic this morning. I hope you know that. You look wonderful. I can't really see you, but I think you look wonderful. Um, and uh, what a great um, conference so far. What Jamar spoke about last night, Dr. Carolyn spoke about last night was just um, fantastic. And so it is so good to be with you this morning. Um, I do want to say, you know, real quick, a little bit about me. I have been married for 25 years now to one wife. I have two wonderful sons. Um, they both have been married for a couple of years now too. So I have two beautiful and brilliant daughter-in-laws. And as Dorothea said, I have been uh, involved in ministry now for about uh, almost 30 years now in youth, student ministry, children's ministry, worship ministry, pastoring, associate pastor, you name it, uh, pretty much have been a part of it. And so uh, so thank you for being here and thank you for uh, trusting us with your time. I know that it is difficult. These conversations can be a little bit tough and complex, but lean in with us today. And I do want to say a special thank you to Dorothea, of course, for inviting me to speak and uh, for trusting me with this topic and also with your hearts. I don't take that lightly. Now, I titled this talk, Wasting Our Witness, Nationalism and the Church, a Pastoral Critique. I want to say just off the start here, this is a weighty topic. And so 30 minutes or however many minutes I have here is not enough time to really dig deep into what's going on with this topic. So I want you to bear with me as I sort of highlight some major ideas here. And um, my hope is that you will consider this a starting place for your own study. I really want to provoke you this morning. I want to provoke you to dig in deeper to what this looks like. And I want to say, trust me, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of material uh, laying on the proverbial cutting room floor, if you will. I also want to say, as Dorothea mentioned earlier, this is a pastoral critique. What that means is I'm not a political commentator. I am a pastor. And as I said, I've been in ministry for almost 30 years now, and I have some great concerns about the church and really in particular about the white evangelical church and her relationship with the United States of America. To be clear, I love both the church and the United States of America. In fact, it is my love for them both that brings me here today to speak on this. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, there can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. So uh, I meant to say it a minute ago, buckle your seatbelts because I talk fast to begin with and with as much material as we've got, we got a long ways to go here. So, uh, but there can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. And I have a deep love for the church, for the body of Christ. And I have a deep love for the nation that I was born in and blessed to live and be a part of. But that deep disappointment, that deep love provided for me when I really looked at it clearly, a deep disappointment. Now, I also want to say in these opening remarks that this is not a critique on patriotism. I'm a patriot. You're probably a patriot. Dorothea said she's a patriot. This is a critique on nationalism, and in particular, the church's relationship with nationalism. 
Patriotism and nationalism are not the same thing, but I will say that good intended patriotism unchecked leads to nationalism. Let me say that again. Good intended patriotism unchecked leads to nationalism. What do I mean by that? And put it really simple. If it can't be critiqued, it's become an idol. If it can't be critiqued, if you can't stand back and critique how the church and the nation have been complicit together in this idea, if we can't critique it, then it has become an idol to us. And we're going to tear down some idols today. Amen. I heard everybody say amen. Now, I love how Reverend William Sloan Coffin says it. He says it like this. There are th three kinds of patriots, two bad and one good. The bad ones are the uncritical lovers, those are the nationalists, and the loveless critics. Good patriots carry on a lover's quarrel with their country, a reflection of God's lover's quarrel with the world. We're going to get in a little bit of a lover's quarrel today. Amen. Now, before we go too far, we've got to define some terms. We want to make sure we're all on the same page when we talk about nationalism and the church. So first, let's define nationalism. Very simply, you can find this at any Webster dictionary or Google it online. Nationalism is this identification with one's own nation and support for its interests, especially to the exclusion or detriment of the interests of other nations. That last part is really important. Most of us probably identify with our own nation. Most of us probably have a certain level of support in our own nation. But here is the problem with nationalism, that it comes to the exclusion or detriment of the in interests of other nations. This is why slogans like America first are problematic for the people of God. Now, that's nationalism. Let's define the church really quick. The church in the Greek is ekklesia. It means the assembled ones or the called out ones. Now, when I read that or think assembled ones or called out ones, I ask the question, assembled to what? Called out to whom? Well, we are supposed to be assembled or called out to Jesus or to the kingdom of God, that we are the called out ones. We've been called out of the world and into the kingdom of God. We've been assembled under the umbrella of the kingdom of God. So these are simple definitions of nationalism and of the church. Now, from these definitions alone, that lean in with me here, from these definitions alone, an honest assessment will conclude that nationalism is antithetical to the church. Matter of fact, some would say that nationalism is anti-Christ. And I tend to agree. Christian nationalism, in my opinion, is an oxymoron. I believe wholeheartedly that Christian nationalism is a gross violation of the third commandment. What's the third commandment? Thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't swear, that you shouldn't use the Lord's name. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say swear, 
But that's not what it means. It means that you should not ascribe things to the nature of God that are not a part of his nature. You should not put the name of God on something that is contrary to the kingdom of God or the nature of God. And here we are talking about Christian nationalism, an oxymoron that violates the very nature of God because God is not an American. God is not a nationalist. Matter of fact, according to Paul, the apostle, the church, the people of God, the ecclesia, kingdom people, is made up of a brand new ethnos, a new creation. Paul says it, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Now, therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation, a new ethnos of people. And in this new ethnos, he tells us in Galatians that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one in Christ. All one in Christ. Galatians 3, 28. So we believe that the church is the body of Christ and that Jesus is the head. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. But that's not intended to be some sort of sentimental theory. No, our orthodoxy needs to be seen in our orthopraxy. What do I mean? Our right beliefs should result in right practice. And I feel like we're missing that in the church today. There is no better place to find right belief and right practice than in Jesus. So we're going to take a moment today to draw from Jesus and his first sermon. I appreciated last night, Jamar said he was doing a historical talk that he was going to say, there wasn't going to be a lot of Bible. Well, there's going to be a lot of Bible here in this moment. So we're going to, we're going to go to the first sermon of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It's a very simple sermon, and it says this, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want to propose to you that this was not only Jesus' first sermon, but it was ultimately his only sermon, his only message. That every other action and every other sermon was a demonstration or commentary on this one idea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matter of fact, Jesus talked about the kingdom more than anything else in Scripture. He says, repent, which means change your mind, change your direction. We've got to think differently because the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is being inaugurated. The kingdom is coming. Jesus was essentially saying, I am here to bring the kingdom and I need you to change your mind because I am bringing a new way of life. The kingdom, as uh, Frank Viola, I love the way Frank Viola defines the kingdom. The kingdom is this, the manifestation of God's ruling presence. The manifestation of God's ruling presence, meaning that in the kingdom, there's a kingdom. There's a presence of God with us, that there is a reigning and ruling over that kingdom, and that there is a manifestation among the people, the church, of the kingdom. So we, the church, the people of God, we are called to witness to this kingdom. And listen to me closely. Any other allegiance 
wastes that witness. Any other allegiance than an allegiance to the kingdom of God is a waste of our witness. Thomas Horrocks, a writer on religion and politics, said it this way, Christianity can never sanctify nationalism, and nationalism will always corrupt Christianity. Now, I know I'm moving quickly. Hopefully you're taking notes, but I have three ways that the church is supposed to identify with and bring witness to the kingdom. And in, and in showing these three ways that we, there may be more, but I have three for you today. These three ways that the church should identify with the kingdom and should bring witness to the kingdom. Hopefully in these three things, you will see where nationalism falls so short and sells us so short where it wastes the witness of the people of God. The first thing is this. We are a political people. The people of God and the kingdom of God, we are a political people. When Christians say we shouldn't talk about politics, what they're really saying is, I don't want to talk about your politics. I don't agree with you, so therefore I don't want to talk about or be challenged by what you have to say about these political ideas. But every single one of us is political. We are a political people. And listen to me, the kingdom of God is political. The kingdom has its very own politic. And that politic is not beholden to the broken two-party partisan system of America. No, it transcends American politics. The kingdom politic is one where every tribe, nation, and tongue can come and is welcome at the table. Jesus spoke of the kingdom, as I said before, more than anything else. A common phrase he would say is, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes out. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And we're challenging you. Go read all of Jesus' statements on the kingdom of heaven. Or he would say things like this. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. What is he doing? He said, I want to change your mind because the kingdom is different than the way you've been living. The politic of the kingdom, the ways of the kingdoms, higher. It transcends the way you've been thinking. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus is Lord. We believe that. But you have to recognize and understand that that statement is a political statement. Because Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not Lord. Now, I can't get into all of this about Caesar Augustus and Julius and, and the father of Caesar Augustus the, and, and, and all of the divination of, of Julius and Caesar being called, Augustus being called the son of God, the name meaning, meaning worthy to worship. I can't get into all of that kind of stuff. But when they were declaring that Jesus was Lord, the disciples, Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They were making very, very intense and dangerous political statements. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. And listen to me. This is why they crucified Jesus. They didn't crucify him because he was healing the sick. 
They didn't crucify him because he turned water into wine. They didn't crucify him because, uh, 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 because he multiplied the fish and the loaves. They crucified him because they saw him as the new king of the Jews. They asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to them, it is as you say. Matter of fact, if you go and look the entire Passion Week, the entire Passion Week is one political statement after another. Just the fact that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey was a political statement. A donkey is an animal of peace. Jesus didn't ride in on a war horse. He was riding in from the Mount of Olives on a, on a beast of peace. He was saying, I am bringing a new kingdom reign to Jerusalem, and it is a kingdom of peace, not a kingdom of war. It was subversive. He was going to overcome Rome, not by sword, not by war horse, not by chariots and men, but by being the prince of peace and sacrificial love. We believe that Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his, and his ascension inaugurated this kingdom and the politic of this kingdom. I hope, I hope you're staying with me here. We are a political people. The scriptures declare that we are both aliens and that we are ambassadors. In the kingdom, Jesus is the king. Follow me here. Baptism represents our citizenship. The Eucharist represents our pledge. And the Sermon on the Mount represents our constitution. Why? Because we are a political people. Maybe you haven't read it that way. Maybe you haven't seen it that way. But the scriptures declare that we're aliens in this land and ambassadors for that. So in the kingdom of God, there is no dual citizenship. There can be no competing interests. Our citizenship, our citizenship and allegiance belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. And this makes us, as the apostle Peter declares, aliens, exiles, strangers, pilgrims, foreigners, sojourners, 1 Peter 2.11 says, Behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So cute to have the bumper sticker, not of this world. But folks, we need more than bumper stickers. We need to live this out. We are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. We have one allegiance and one allegiance alone. Furthermore, the scriptures declare that we are not just aliens, but we are also ambassadors of the kingdom. Now follow me, an ambassador is a political appointment, one who is sent to represent the interests of the one who is sending them. That is who we are. Second Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Look at that. He has given us the ministry and the message of reconciliation. And in doing so, it says, therefore, we are ambassadors. We have been sent. We have been authorized. We have been appointed by Christ himself to carry this sort of word to the world. We are a political people. This is how Jared Wilson says this. It's how I feel. He says, if you feel politically homeless, take heart. You are feeling the tug of your heavenly citizenship, the normality of feeling like aliens and exiles in this world. More of us need to feel this way, like aliens and exiles in this world. The right don't own me. The left don't own me. I'm not beholden to any sort of donkey or elephant. I submit and yield my allegiance to the lamb that was slain. It is my politic, the kingdom of God. Secondly, we are a proleptic people. Now, this is a new term to me, so we're going to break it down. We are a proleptic people. We are citizens of an already but not yet kingdom. Meaning the kingdom has already been inaugurated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it has not yet been consummated. Jesus has not come again. And so this, to borrow from Lisey Camp's masterful manifesto, Scandalous Witness. This calls us to live as a proleptic people. That word proleptic, it's a grammatical term in which a future event is so sure to come, so sure to be the case that it is spoken of in the present tense. That means as a proleptic proleptic people that we believe so deeply that the resurrection was the inauguration of the kingdom of God and that as Jesus said that kingdom will be fully consummated when he comes back that we live today as if the consummation of the kingdom has already happened so we live from the future I'm getting a little bit excited I hope you're I hope you're I hope you're hanging with me I know I talk fast Listen, we are CE Christians. I know that has a negative connotation to it, but follow me. We are Christmas and Easter Christians. Our entire hope hangs on these two moments in history. The incarnation and the resurrection. A virgin womb and an empty tomb. And these beliefs and hopes that we have in the incarnation and the resurrection, they have real implications as to, the, as to the idea of how then shall we now live and as to what will the end of history be. In other words, the kingdom already inaugurated is taking us somewhere. The kingdom consummated. That's where we're going. So we live as people from the future as a proleptic people. We believe in the consummated kingdom so greatly that we live today as if it's already done. 
We believe that Jesus is coming again, bringing the fullness of a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And as proleptic people, we believe that the future is so sure that we live it out in this present day. Now hear me, we are not waiting for some glad morning when this life is over so we can fly away. There's no escapist mentality in the kingdom of God. We are a proleptic people. We have a politic that transcends and we live today as if the kingdom of God has already broke forth into our lives fully and completely. So we participate and we co-labor with God right now in the already but not yet kingdom of God. Come on, somebody. This is why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is already established in heaven. And we recite the Lord's Prayer oftentimes, but we have to think through the implications of what Jesus is saying there. He's telling us to pray to God the Father. Let your kingdom break forth in my life. Let your will break forth in my life today, right now, on earth, as you've already established it in heaven. Lee Camp, in his book, Scandalous Witness, said this, the coming kingdom entails a shared abundance and an unencumbered generosity. Thus, we practice generosity and hospitality even now in the present. The coming kingdom entails the unlearning of war. Thus, we learn the counsels of peace right now. The coming kingdom entails the righting of all wrongs by truth-telling and suffering love. Thus, we tell the truth, practice suffering love and right wrongs now. We are a proleptic people. We are supposed to live by a kingdom ethic right now. And the last thing, number three. Hope I'm doing okay on time. Praise the Lord. We are a prophetic people. We are a prophetic people. We are truth tellers. We are citizens of the kingdom who live from a transcendent politic with a proleptic perspective. And therefore, we must engage our world with a prophetic voice. We are a prophetic people. What do I mean by that? Well, I love the theologian Walter Brueggemann's uh, definition of prophetic ministry. This comes from his book, The Prophetic Imagination. And here's how he processes what it means to be a prophetic people. He says, the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. The task of the prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. There's a key word here, alternative. A prophetic people has something to say that is contrary to the current movement of culture. Simply put, 
we are spirit-inspired truth-tellers. We are spirit-inspired truth-tellers. We speak truth to power and we declare hope to the oppressed. Now this, this was the message of Jesus and I want to tell you, it's our message too. Just let's look quickly at some of the things that Jesus said. Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21, Jesus shows up at the temple. It was, was his custom. And it says, they, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. And he unrolled the scroll and the, found the place where it was written. Now, I want to stop there for a moment because my understanding is that you would be given the scroll and you would unroll the scroll to the day's reading. And Jesus doesn't just open up to the day's reading. He opens up and finds where it is written. And this is what he finds. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the Bible says that he rolls up the scroll. You can imagine. It says all eyes were fixed upon him. And he looks up to everybody and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whew. Prophetic. Not only is he reading from the prophet Isaiah about himself, but he is also declaring prophetically to the people in that room that there is a new politic, a new kingdom is breaking forth. And he's saying today, the kingdom of God is being inaugurated, it's breaking forth in this place. The, everything about this the anointing to proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus opens up the Beatitudes, which I said earlier is the constitution of the kingdom of God. I believe it's the manifesto of Jesus. It's the greatest dissertation that we have of Jesus, whether it was all spoken in, in one sitting or not. We're not quite sure, but listen to me. Matthew, he opens up the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew by saying this. He opened up his mouth and taught them, Matthew 5, verses 2 through 9, saying, blessed are. These are the Beatitudes. Blessed are. These Beatitudes are very political. Blessed are. Now, I think a better way maybe to say that is God draws near to. Our American uh, prosperity gospel mentality, we got blessed as vehicles in our big houses and big cars and big money. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is God draws near to the poor in spirit. God draws near to those who mourn. God draws near to the meek. God draws near to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to the merciful, to the pure in heart, to the peacemakers. He's, he's reframing what the kingdom of God is prophetically declaring. This is what the kingdom of God will be about, that God is coming near to those that the society has pushed aside, to those that the culture has oppressed and marginalized. God is coming near to them in Jesus Christ. 
And this is what has been given to us in the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority has been given unto me. Go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news to all creation. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. So Jesus says, I want you to participate in being truth tellers. I want you to take the good news of the liberty of the kingdom of God. The good news that captives are being set free. Blind eyes are opening. That God is near to the brokenhearted. That God is near to those who are poor in spirit. That God is near to those who are mourned. I want you to take that good news into all all of the world. One version says, as you go, while you're going, preach the good news. Let me close with this. We have a problem in the church. Rather than being a prophetic people, the church has found herself enmeshed in nationalistic idolatry. She has conflated the cross and the flag, the canon, and the constitution, as if they are equal symbols of freedom and religion. She has aligned herself with the interests of the empire in hopes that the empire will reciprocate. But the empire is just using her. If you don't believe this to be true, there are some very popular memes that are kicking around on your Facebook page. Maybe you've seen them before. One says this, I stand for the flag and I kneel for the cross. Think about how asinine of a statement that is in regards to the kingdom of God. Or how about this one? Only two defining forces have ever offered to die for you. Jesus Christ and the American soldier. One died for your soul. The other died for your freedom. That's nationalism. That's a conflation of the kingdom of God and the politics of this nation. And these two allegiances, or we cannot be having allegiance to these two ideas at the same time. The church has been fully participating in what I would call Esau's error. You remember Jacob and Esau? Esau comes in from hunting. Jacob would stay home and cook with his mother. And as Esau, this burly man's man, comes walking in, he tells Jacob, I'm hungry, make me something to eat. I'm famished, I'm starving, he says. The immediate moment he wants from his brother, Jacob. And Jacob says to me, not until, or says to him, not until you sell me your birthright. Now I'm paraphrasing this story. You can go read it for yourself. Finally, Esau gives in because the immediacy of the moment, the hunger of the moment, caused him to sell Jacob his birthright for a bowl of soup. The church is fully participating in Esau's error. She has sold her birthright for a bowl of soup. She gave up her ability to be prophetic, sacrificing her credibility, all for proximity to power. And listen to me, she's ended up with neither. She has no real power and no prophetic voice or witness. Her nationalism has been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Why? Because we cannot speak truth to power 
when we are so hungry for power, we will sacrifice truth. Let me say that again. We cannot speak truth to power. When we are so hungry for power, we will sacrifice truth. This is the problem that I am seeing with the end justifies the means in our political environment today among evangelicals. A willingness to sacrifice the truth, the ethics of the kingdom of God for proximity to power. So hungry for the empire to do our bidding, to make us powerful, to protect us from, from the world that we're selling out our prophetic voice for a bowl of soup. Now, Esau was a hunter. He was a meat eater. A bowl of lentil soup does nothing for somebody who lives off stakes. Y'all with me? The church is selling out her prophetic voice for a bowl of soup. May we be a people who live from the politic of the kingdom of God with a proleptic perspective and a prophetic voice that declares Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And where we have confused this declaration where we have been caught in the idolatry of nationalism. Well, let me leave you with this quote from our King Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make Him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.